Well, the topic I'd like to address tonight is whether or not the Old Testament is still worth studying. I expect that most of the people in this auditorium would answer that question the way I do, with a resounding yes. As a local body of believers, we have historically based our faith on the entire Word of God, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Unfortunately, that view is not held universally in the religious community. There have been many people over the centuries that have disregarded either the truthfulness of the Old Testament or at least the relevance of the, uh, to New Testament believers. The question of relevance has come to the forefront in the last couple of years uh, through the book Irresistible, Reclaiming the New that Jesus Unleashed to the World by pastor and author Andy Stanley. The foundational thesis of the book is that the problem with the modern church is our incessant habit of reaching back into the old covenant concepts, teachings, sayings, and narratives. When it comes to stumbling blocks to the faith, the Old Testament is right up there at the top of the list. To put it simply, when people struggle to believe, the Old Testament is usually the culprit. Well, there are many Bible teachers and scholars that have written loving but firm uh, reviews and rebuttals to that book, and they do a much better job than I could ever do here. If you are interested in those reviews, I suggest you go to the Gospel Coalition website, and they have some excellent articles on that topic. It's my intent in this message to show at least a few reasons why the Old Testament is worth studying and why it is still relevant to the modern-day church. I do not intend to offer a critique of Pastor Stanley's book in this message, but I will point out some of the arguments that he makes in that book and uh, suggest some alternatives. Although the book is new, many of the arguments that he makes are, have been around as long as Christianity itself. I'll simply use the examples from Irresistible as discussion points because of the newness of the book. Now, there are many ways to approach the question of why should we study the Old Testament. I'd like to look at that question by seeing what several authors of the New Testament, primarily the Apostle Paul, has to say about the Old Testament. As Pastor Tim has said many times in the past, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And I think that's true for this topic as well. The passage of Scripture that I'd like to focus on this evening is very likely one that many of you are familiar with. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Paul is writing this letter to his dear friend Timothy, whom he calls his true child in the faith. This is the last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote, which was during his second Roman imprisonment. He knew he was going to be executed, and he wanted to write Timothy a final letter of encouragement uh, for his ministry. So in this passage, the Apostle Paul writes, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. 
Paul encourages Timothy to remember the proper instructions he received at the hands of his mother and grandmother. The sacred writings to which Paul refers are the Old Testament scriptures. The New Testament did not yet exist as a complete collection. Indeed, some of the New Testament books had not yet been written. I'd like to take a look at some of the attributes of Scripture, specifically the Old Testament, that the Apostle Paul describes in these passages. As many of you know, the Apostle Paul grew up as a devout Jew, studied Jewish law under the best rabbis, and became one of the most revered rabbis of his time. He used his knowledge of the Jewish scriptures and the Jewish law as the basis for persecuting members of this new religious sect called the Way, which were followers of Jesus, those who we now call Christians. After his conversion, you would expect Paul, of all people, to have been in the best position to state that the Jewish scriptures, or what he called the sacred writings, were no longer relevant. But as we read in this passage, Paul places a great value on the Jewish scriptures, not only for how to live, but as the basis for knowing Christ. He also states that the authority of the Jewish scriptures, which we now call the Old Testament, is God himself. American Reformed theologian B.B. Warfield, who taught at Princeton Theological Seminary in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, demonstrated that the Greek term translated breathed out by God refers to all of Scripture and not just portions of it. The entirety of canon of Scripture down to the individual words themselves were given by God and therefore entirely true. The Bible affirms no errors and is the only infallible source of Christian doctrine. So based on that, we do not have the option to pick and choose what scripture we want to believe, since the entire Bible is the inspired word of God. We dare not get selective as to what is true and what is not, what is relevant, and nor do we discount those passages that make us feel uncomfortable and those that we don't immediately understand. In his book, Irresistible, Pastor Stanley clearly states that he is not questioning the divine inspiration of the Old Testament scriptures. I need to be fair and point that out right away. However, there have been detractors of the Old Testament over the centuries that do not consider the Jewish scriptures divinely authoritative. For example, a second century figure named Marcion rejected the Old Testament as a product of a false god. As I mentioned a moment ago, Pastor Stanley does not make that assertion, but both Marcion and Stanley share a deep conviction that the Old Testament is fundamentally at odds with Paul's gospel. Verse 16 of our passage describes the purpose or value of the Old Testament scripture. Pastor Warren Wiersbe, in his New Testament commentary, gives some brief descriptions of the purposes of scripture. So we read that the scriptures are profitable for teaching or doctrine, what Wiersbe calls what is right for reproof, what he calls what is wrong, correction, how to get right, and training or instruction in righteousness, how to stay right. In order to know what's right and wrong, what do we need? We need rules, or in this case, laws. In our society, we use laws or rules to show our children what is right and wrong, how to act, and what is not 
right or appropriate. We use laws and rules in our society to properly influence our behavior towards others. In other words, we use it for teaching and reproof. Let's take a look at how the law of the Old Testament is profitable for teaching and reproof. Pastor Stanley describes why he believes the Old Testament is irrelevant. To be fair, some of his points are valid, including this argument that many aspects of the Mosaic law are abrogated under the New Covenant. It is true that the Old Covenant worship with temple, animal sacrifices, and earthly priests is now fulfilled in the Christ. Pastor Stanley asserts that the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, or Mosaic Covenant in particular, was written to and for the people of ancient Israel. And his conclusion is, since we are not of ancient Israel, those scriptures do not apply to us. But we need to remember, however, that God identified the Israelites as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, as we read in Exodus 19.6. They are a people set apart. The same is true for us, though. As Christians, we too are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 1 Peter 2.9 is a key verse that connects New Testament believer to the people of God, not by birth, as with Israel, but through faith, through Christ Jesus. As New Testament Christians, we, not, we do not need to go to a temple or any other building, for that matter, in order to worship. We do not sacrifice animals in order to cover over our sins, nor do we need to confess our sins to earthly priests and do some sort of penance to have our sins forgiven. We certainly cannot do anything to earn justification before God. Accepting God's gift of salvation that Jesus provided through his death and resurrection is our only means to becoming right before the holy and just God of the universe. Unfortunately, Pastor Stanley, as well as others that discount the Old Testament, dismiss the entirety of the law, both the ceremonial and judicial laws, as well as the moral law. After all, the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians 2.21 that we cannot be justified by following the law, for if we could, then Christ died for nothing. Does Pastor Stanley have a good argument here? Eh, only to a point. The Apostle Paul does state that no one does good, not even one, and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, as we read in Romans chapter 3. So what good is knowing and keeping the law of God? At this point, I think it's good to understand the purpose of the law. The Reformation was founded on grace and not upon law. Yet the law of God was not repudiated by the Reformers. John Calvin, for example wrote what has become to be known as the threefold use of the law in order to show the importance of the law in the Christian life. The first purpose of the law is to be a mirror. The law of God reflects the mirror and mirrors the perfect righteousness of God. The law tells us much about who God is. And perhaps more important, it illuminates our human sinfulness. The law highlights our weakness so that we might seek the strength found in Christ. Here, the law acts as a severe schoolmaster that drives us to Christ, as we read in Galatians 3.24. A second purpose of the law is the restraint of evil. The law in and of itself cannot change human hearts. It can, however, 
serve to protect the righteous from the unjust. The law allows for a limited measure of justice here on this earth until the last judgment is realized. And the third purpose of the law is to reveal what is pleasing to God. A born again, as born-again children of God, the law enlightens us as to what is pleasing to our Father, whom we seek to serve. The Christian delights in the law as God himself delights in it. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, in John fourteen fifteen, According to Calvin, this is the highest function of the law, to serve as an instrument of the people of God to give him honor and glory. Now, the moral law of God is more than just the Ten Commandments that are recorded for us in Exodus chapter 20. However, the Ten Commandments are the most recognized of all Scripture regarding the moral law that God has provided to his people. There are those who hold to the notion that the Ten Commandments and all of the law, as we mentioned a while ago, uh, were intended only for Israel and no longer have any relevance to us as New, as New Testament Christians. Pastor Stanley, in his book Irresistible, holds that opinion as well. He writes, The Ten Commandments have no authority over you, none. To be clear, thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments. He uses the argument that we are no longer under the law, but under grace as the basis of the position that even the principles and commands of the Ten Commandments are no longer applicable to us. The argument is, since the law cannot save us, what is the point of trying to follow the law? The thought is, whether whatever laws, rules, or behaviors that we should follow can simply be found in the New Testament. After all, we are New Testament believers, so shouldn't we follow what the New Testament tells us? Well, let's take a look at some of those New Testament laws, as they call it, and see if they are truly unique to the New Testament. There are several passages in the New Testament that lists sins that we are to keep from doing. One such passage is Galatians 5, 19 through 21. We read, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And some early manuscripts also include murder in that list. Well, are the items on this list a set of new ideas from the Apostle Paul? Well, at the very least, items on this list are addressed in the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment, you shall make or you shall not make and worship any idol. The third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Eighth commandment, you shall not steal. Ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And the tenth commandment, you shall not covers, covet your neighbor's property. So, this one short list of the works of the flesh has its root in eight of the ten commandments. And by the way, 
Apostle Paul does quote the fifth commandment in Ephesians 6, 2 and 3. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Well, I've spent much of my time so far this evening talking about how we as New Testament believers should view the law and understand how it applies to us. Most of the arguments about the relevance of the New Testament, or I'm sorry, the Old Testament, revolve around the relevance of the law. And I hope I've demonstrated that the New Testament puts a great value on the moral law and why we should understand and follow it. As we leave the topic of the law, I want to share a quote from the study note in the Reformation Study Bible that I think summarizes the importance of the moral law. It says, By studying or meditating on the law of God, we attend the school of righteousness. We learn what pleases God and what offends Him. The moral law that God reveals in Scripture is always binding on us. Our redemption is, not, is from the curse of the law, not from our duty to obey it. We are justified not because of our obedience to the law, but in order that we may become obedient to God's law. To love Christ is to keep his commands. To love God is to obey his law. So we've talked about how the scriptures, or the Jewish scriptures, or Old Testament in particular, are profitable for teaching and reproof. What does the Old Testament teach us about correction and training in righteousness? Or what Wearsby describes as how to get right and how to stay right. Well, as we look at the law, you might think that we're in an impasse. After all, we've just spent most of the evening so far learning that the law cannot save us, and in fact, it condemns us. So how are the Jewish scriptures profitable for us on how to get right? Well, as we learn from the threefold purpose of the law, or threefold use of the law, the first purpose is to show us our sinfulness and drive us to Christ. But do we see the Messiah in the Old Testament? Well, Jesus did. You may recall in Luke chapter 4, we see Jesus in the synagogue reading from the prophet Isaiah. In verse 18, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set, liberty, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And in verse 21, he says, And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And in Luke 24, 27, we read that after his resurrection, Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus. He opened the scripture to those whom he walked with and said, And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them all of the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So let's take a look again at our passage in 2 Timothy. Paul reminds Timothy that in uh, in verse 15, that from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul asserts in this verse that the sacred writings, or the Old Testament, gives us wisdom in order to be saved through Christ. Bible scholars have identified over 300 prophecies regarding Jesus as the Messiah throughout the Old Testament. 
Many of the familiar prophecies regarding the Messiah are found in Isaiah and Jeremiah, but there are statements regarding the Messiah throughout the entire Old Testament. I'd like to take a look at a few that demonstrate that the Messiah was predicted in the Old Testament and that Jesus fulfilled those prophecies. Obviously, I cannot look at all 300 of them, nor can I really do justice uh, to the, uh, all the aspects of the messianic prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. I've selected just a few, though, to demonstrate the point. Well, the first aspect I want to point out is the birth of the Messiah. There are a number of prophecies that discuss the lineage of the Messiah through Abraham and through David and then up to the birth of Jesus. Jesus' genealogy, as recorded in the Gospels, shows that he was born in that line. That genealogy is important for establishing Jesus' authority as one who came from the line of David. However, if we're honest, we know that there are many that could make that claim. One prophecy, however, eliminates all but Jesus as one who could be the Messiah, that of the virgin birth. As we read in Isaiah 7:14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and will call his name Emmanuel. The fulfillment of that prophecy is recorded in Luke chapter 1 verse 35. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So the prophecy of a virgin giving birth is a one-of-a-kind distinction for the Messiah. And the account of Jesus' birth demonstrates that he has fulfilled that prophecy. The next aspect I want to point out is the life and ministry of Jesus. In order to meet the requirements of the sacrifice that will fully satisfy God's justice, the Messiah must lead a sin-free life. The prophecy that describes the quality of the sacrifice required for sin is written in Exodus 12.5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. The prophecy is fulfilled by Jesus as we read in Hebrews 9.14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The Mosaic law required that any animal sacrificed as a sin offering must be unblemished and without defect. Jesus' sinless life, as we read in 2 Corinthians 5.21, allowed Jesus to become sin for us and completely atone for our sins. Third, I want to point out uh, the prophecies about Jesus' death and resurrection. The death and resurrection of Jesus, or of the Christ, is, are the most significant events in human history. So it's not surprising that there would be plenty of Old Testament prophecies pointing to that remarkable event. A prophecy that describes how the Messiah will conquer death is found in Isaiah 25, 7 and 8. It reads, And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. 
The fulfillment of that prophecy is recorded in the accounts of the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus in the gospel accounts. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 and 55 summarizes it this way. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? As these prophecies reveal, God planned our redemption all the way back to the garden. Jesus' death and resurrection were the most important events in history. And it's no surprise that God would give us signs of his plans throughout Israel's history and the prophets. So why are those prophecies important to us as New Testament believers? Well, simply stated, the Messianic prophecies and Jesus' fulfillment of all of them establishes Jesus' authority as the Christ, the Messiah. Many people have claimed to be the Messiah over the courses of, the, of history. A quick internet search lists over 50 people that have claimed to be either the Jewish Messiah or the Christian Messiah. The thing that makes Jesus different and uniquely qualified to be the Christ is that he fulfilled all the prophecies regarding the Messiah found in the sacred texts or the Old Testament scriptures. The Apostle Paul knew that. Timothy's mother and grandmother knew that. And Timothy was made wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, as we read in verse 15 of Second uh, Timothy 3. So we can only get right, as Wiersbe states, by salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The law brings us to the knowledge that we need a Savior, and the Messianic prophecies show us that Jesus is the Savior. So now that we know how to get right through faith in Christ Jesus, what does the Old Testament scripture say about how to stay right? Or, as we read in 2 Timothy 3.17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Well, of course, we can use the moral law as a guide on how to live our day-to-day lives. And uh, that would be in a, in a way that would honor and serve the Lord. We have seen several examples of that already this evening. I would also like to suggest that we get a clear direction and encouragement from the Old Testament as to the importance that God places on sharing the gospel throughout the nations. There are many verses in the Old Testament in almost every book that describes God's heart for the nations. In fact, John Kresge did an extensive study of scriptures uh, for his series that he taught last year on the study of the Bible, where he found over 40 books in the Old Testament that had passages that discussed God's heart for the nations and his desire to have his name known among those nations. One passage that demonstrates his heart for the nations and how God wants to see his name honored Across the, across the world, is Isaiah 49.6. It reads, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. It is clear that God wants to have his name known in all nations, in all peoples, the Great Commission, as we call it, is recorded in Matthew 28:19. However, based on what we read throughout the Old Testament, we know that God has been on the move throughout human history to make his name known and to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. 
One example of how the Old Testament is used to bring God's salvation to the ends of the earth is how missionaries with Ethnos 360 present the gospel chronologically. I asked our own Preston Nichols uh, to describe the chronological gospel presentation process and what part the Old Testament plays in that teaching. They start with the account of creation and the fall of man recorded in Genesis. They describe God and his character and his justice. Then they use the content of the Old Testament to describe how God established a system of worship and sacrifice that would cover over sins and how the sacrifice of Jesus, the Messiah, would ultimately fulfill that requirement. We've heard during many ministry presentations sharing the Old Testament has to say about what sharing what the Old Testament has to say about God, man, sin, Christ, and our response has been invaluable in presenting the gospel in a way that makes sense to those who hear. So I want to return to my original question tonight. Is the Old Testament still worth studying? Well, I hope that I've demonstrated the value of the Old Testament to us as New Testament believers. Through studying the Jewish scriptures, we see the character of God, his holiness, justice, and mercy. We see our brokenness before God and our need for salvation that we cannot earn. We also see the Messiah, Jesus Christ, through the scripture. We also see how we can live in order to serve him in our day-to-day lives, as well as the importance of sharing the message of salvation to those around us. Now, I've covered only a few of the uh, possible uh, ideas as to why the Old Testament is important, and I suspect that many of you have your own reasons that this Old Testament is worth studying. But as with any portion of Scripture, I would encourage and caution you as you read the Old Testament to make sure that you understand the context in which a given passage is written. As I stated earlier, much of the Old Testament is directed to the nation of Israel, so we must be careful when claiming promises of the Old Testament for ourselves. There are many passages, however, that are directly applicable to New Testament believers. For example, I would suggest that many of the Psalms are prayers of the psalmists that are applicable to us as well as for Israel during that time in history. And the wisdom written in the book of Proverbs is timeless and touches all people of all generations. Now, I will admit that I have struggled over the years to study the Old Testament and really understand what is being revealed. I have found it especially difficult to read the prophets because I did not connect the content to the context of Israel's history. This year, I have been reading through the Bible uh, in a chronological fashion. The thing I have uh, appreciated about that approach is how the history of creation, the history of Israel, the prophets, and the poetry and wisdom literature all fit together in a chronological fashion that makes sense to me, and then I can see God's revealed word within the context of that history. Now, I know this may not be a method that works for everyone, and I'm sure there are many other study tools that uh, would help you to understand the Old Testament within context to meet your specific needs. I would like to end this message with a couple of comments from Michael Kruger, president of the Reformed Theological Seminary uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina. And this will be on a couple of different slides. 
Dr. Kruger writes, people do not have to believe the Bible to be saved, at least not all of it. Indeed, they don't even need to know that the Bible exists to be saved. Imagine the missionary preaching to a tribe in a remote jungle, for example. While a person doesn't have to believe the Bible is true to be saved, the Bible has to be true for people to be saved. Why? Because Jesus said the Bible is true. And if it is not true, then he was wrong. And that raises issues for our salvation. But it's even bigger than this point. If Jesus is the divine Lord of the universe, then he is also the author of the Old Testament. He, through the inspired human authors, wrote it. And the authority of Jesus is linked to the truth of the Old Testament. They stand or fall together. If the Old Testament is God's inspired word to us, it is important that it be studied and understood and appropriately applied to our lives as New Testament believers. As Pastor Mike and his team come up for the closing song, let us close this message in a word of prayer. Well, dear Heavenly Father, it is a privilege to have your inspired word in our hands. We appreciate that you wrote it through the inspiration you provided to the human authors that, re authors that recorded it for us. And we also appreciate that your word is translated into the language that we understand and can use in our day-to-day -day lives. Father, let us never forget the value of your revealed word. We think specifically of the Old Testament, which shows your character, including your holiness, righteousness, mercy, and love. And we also, that also shows our need for you and the provision that you made through the Messiah. Let us always revere the study of the Old Testament with the fervor and joy that we study the New Testament. Once again, we thank you for providing the Old Testament. May we cherish it as a prominent part of your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray.